Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 81. The boys are back from Gen Con 2015. This week's feature review, if you like Seven Wonders, try out these games. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip-syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. Welcome to the table, everyone. We're so glad to have you join us here this week. The boys are back in town. We're talking about Gen Con. We're talking about the best games. If you like Seven Wonders, try out these games. Now, at the time of this podcast, we're recording actually a little bit in advance. So any talk about Gen Con will be either clearly speculative or clearly magical. <laughs> but nonetheless, we are here with a new episode. If this is the first time you're listening to us, we are a weekly podcast that talks about card games, board games, miniature games, and RPGs. So basically, if it's in the tabletop industry, we are talking about it. And every once in a while, we talk about video games very, very briefly because otherwise Drew yells at us. <laughs> Blame Drew. Blame Drew. It's okay though, because Drew has the magic. So he has I all am. of the magic. I am the magic. He has the magic of the rondel. <laughs> the eternal circle. It's true. I've got the magic in me. <laughs> Sorry. Every mashup I make turns to gold, and then you'll see that Risk is really a pretty good game when it has. Please, I don't. I lost it. All right. I'll work with you on your song parodies. We'll, we'll work uh, together on that. All right, all right, all right. With all of that mishmash mashed up, kind of slapped together, we wanted to talk about our brand new contest. If you weren't at GenCon 2015, if you didn't see the program and didn't see that the Dice Tower Network, on behalf of Cool Stuff Inc is sponsoring a contest. So for Board Gamers Anonymous, we will have an opportunity for you each and every week to put in an entry in our contest. Now, you can put in four entries because for the next four weeks, we'll have a different opportunity to enter. And then at the end, we will choose one person randomly. That person will win $50 from Cool Stuff, Inc., and then that one person will be entered into the Dice Tower Network contest out of all those podcasts, which aren't very many. So if you do win that 50, you have a good shot at winning $1,000 from Cool Stuff, Inc. We're so glad to have them sponsor this contest. We're really grateful about that. And for our first contest this week and our first opportunity for you to get an entry – we really would appreciate if you would go to BoardGamersAnonymous.com and on our webpage, on the front page, you are going to see an opportunity to be able to fill out a survey. Now, each and every week we talk about how this podcast is for you. This podcast is about sharing the table and the insane fun that we have together. So with this survey, 
we wanted to get to know more about you and what you like to game and what you like to talk about and what topics and issues, anything about the gaming industry. You know, what do you want to hear in a future broadcast? So by going to BoardGamersAnonymous.com, filling out this very quick survey, we'll be able to serve your future board gaming, miniature gaming, card gaming, RPGing, and when Drew's not listening, video gaming (laughs) (laughs) needs in the future. So with that said, check out our website, check out all of the blog articles, check out all of the podcasts, our large archive at this point of 80 different podcasts and everything that we're talking about and all the brand new news. Now, with that said, let's get to the current news. Drew, take it away. Shout it from the tabletops. Sir, you're going to need to get down from there. Well, and shout it from the tabletop, our news this week. I don't know about you guys, but Gen Con is already over for me. (gasps) This is Sunday. You guys are still stuck in the past somehow. I had a great time. Okay. Believe me. Did you know that Mayfair... Mayfair Games set another world record for the largest game of Catan. Wow. It was fantastic. The old record was 922, uh, and they beat that record. Okay. Don't ask me by how much, because uh, I, I cannot remember the number. Okay. It's on the tip of my tongue. Well, did you guys check it out? Were you there? We absolutely did check it out. Everybody here is a fan of Catan, and, uh, you know. We may or may not have had some participation in that, but, you know, we can't say because we don't want to upset the time-space continuum. I'm going to be honest, I didn't check it out. All right. (laughs) I I had other things to do at the time myself, but it was for charity, so it was a good cause. Well, now I feel like a real heel. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still in the past, and I can tell you that I will check it out for charity. Mayfair does some some great programs every year. Whether it's Cones of Dunshare? Yeah. Wednesday. The day we pulled into town, we went in and got our tickets, got our badges the day before on Wednesday. It was Retailer Trade Day. Uh-huh. Um, we didn't get there early enough to, to check it out. Gen Con actually had to cap the attendance of that. They, they've never capped the attendance at Gen Con, but they did for Trade Day at 500 people. It's the ninth annual event. It just is building steam every year, growing bigger and bigger. It's for educators and retailers, but capping it means that some worthy attendees didn't get a chance to sign up. Do you think the the retailer trade day should be a separate event, or is it better off being tied to Gen Con? Well, we're just seeing board gaming explode, and it doesn't seem like these venues are big enough to hold our ever-expanding hobbies. So I don't know what they'll do in the future, but... I know that that Gen Con and several other conventions have talked about larger and larger spaces. So I could see this in the future kind of expanding to maybe even a week of different events. That would be nice if if they had a bigger venue. Oh, sure. Um, Because, yeah, if you're going to come to Indianapolis for one thing, you might as well stay for the others if you can get in. Sure. Absolutely. Interesting. And did you know, this is a, a little-known fact, but there were more gamers who weren't at Gen Con than gamers who were at Gen Con. Did you realize, you know, as packed as that place was, that's just a minority of us. Um, but don't feel bad for all the folks who didn't get to Gen Con. This weekend was the second annual Gen Cant Festival. Okay. I attended and, that last year, or yeah. didn't attend it last year. <laughs> I think we all did. You know what? They even have a new thing coming up, a Gen Cant Solo Con. For people who aren't even a part of Gen Cant, they hold their own little 
one-person solo conventions all by themselves. <laughs> uh, we want to include everybody, even the ones who want to exclude themselves. So, But uh, the publishers are great for pitching in, providing contests and giveaways for, for those who sign up. Um, it's awesome that if you, even if you couldn't have made Gen Con, you can still be there in spirit by participating. Awesome thing. Now, in other game news, let's step away from Indianapolis for a moment. ICV2, that, uh, the great website that uh, clocks the business of hobby gaming, released its final numbers for 2014. $125 million in board games sold, $55 million in dice and card games for a combined $180 million in those two categories. Chris, how much of that was yours? I would say about at least two-thirds. My Kickstarter was uh, you know, pretty full this year. Yeah. That's a lot of money, and that represents uh, overall all the five categories for hobby games. <laughs> it grew twenty percent. Wow! And Daniel, you'd be pleased to know the leader in that category with RPGs—they grew sixty-seven percent in sales the past year. Jeez. Yeah, RPGs, RPGs, <laughs> RPGs. So yes, it's true. Gaming has passed its peak and is in decline. No, whoa, 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 hold on a second. They always, every every couple of months, somebody comes out with that. It's board games are over, you know, it's a fad. Um, Too many hipsters playing, so they assume it's going to fade away. Oh, that's true, <laughs> but we hope the hipsters fade away. Um, okay. No, 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 we're inclusive. Even the exclusive ones, we include them. Uh, ICV2 also released its quarterly, quarterly report for the spring game sales. Now, um, for some reason, they continue to divide board from dice and cards, so two different categories. I think it's the price point. Cards and dice games are cheaper. Um, but they came out with a list of top ten sales every uh, every quarter. And it's like a power ranking. Who's in the top? The, the franchises are always there. Catan, Ticket to Ride, Pandemic are all in the top four. But I'm going to give you a list of six new games that were released in the past 12 months. You have to tell me which is the best seller of those six games. The The six games that were released in the last 12 months, they're all in the top 10 list of best-selling okay. games of the spring. Alchemists, Castles of Mad King Ludwig, Dead of Winter, Roll for the Galaxy, Star Wars Imperial Assault, XCOM the board game. Best-selling in number of units or in dollars? Yes, biggest sales. I'm going to go with uh, Star Wars Imperial Assault just because... I think Dead of Winter was more sought after, but they didn't have as much in the stock. That's a big factor, isn't it? Yeah, and Star Wars is always huge, so how could you go wrong? And it's it's a great game. So, yeah, Imperial Assault I'm going with. And they sold a lot of that, and it's already in Barnes & Noble and everywhere else. So, yeah, it's it's everywhere. If it's Barnes & Noble, I guess. Yeah, I'm going to go with Dead of Winter, just to be counterculture. Well, thank you for that... (laughs) uh, uh, contrariness but it was star wars imperial assault uh it seemed too obvious i was hoping daniel, something. I... <laughs> yeah well daniel don't fight the ip don't fight, fight the ip yeah that's true <laughs> yeah now if anyone still cares about cards and dice games uh we do that, <laughs> boss monster still number one okay top wow. seller wow they they hold on to that spot they are the boss monster that that game has legs now, of all the games uh, from the last 12 months, was, the top card yeah. and dice game is Sheriff of Nottingham. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. That is really uh, held on, uh, caught on, too. Now, so ICV2 says the hobby games grew 20%. Hasbro, on the other hand, reports its game sales for the past quarter were actually down 6%. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's stop the giggling and move on. Okay. 
Will Wheaton's tabletop gang made another mistake in the rules, this time for Roll For It. This seems to be a golden age for tabletop hate watchers on the internet. So if that's you, congratulations. They made a mistake with Roll For It? Roll For It. Very the simple col- game. The Calliope game with the <laughs> dice that you match on a card? Yeah. Wow. I was about to say, like, all right, guys, everybody makes mistakes. We've made mistakes, too. But I don't know if we've ever made a mistake with a game that simple. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, what are they smoking before they start recording? That's what I want to know. You take these dice and you chew them and you spit them on a card, and that's pretty much how you play the game, I think, right? You guys know that, like, karma states that we are going to mess up rules on this episode now, right? <laughs> yeah, well, bring it on, karma. Bring it on. You see, Anthony, after uh, talking about Lewis and Clark, I have learned to never talk about rules. Whenever <laughs> I talk about any game, you will note that I do not provide any specifics about the rules because. You know, I'm pretty confident in my reading of the rules, but just in case. But you know, <laughs> just you know in case. it's going to happen. You create a popular video series that's all about teaching people a game. You're going to mess up at some point. You can't not. Like, did they play a whole episode of Roll for it? Because that would be the most boring episode of Tabletop <laughs> ever. <laughs> well, their their videos are always edited. I mean, it's not... You know, they they don't play a whole thing, do they ever? They usually do play a whole it. game, and then they cut out chunks of it. Right, they, so they don't play it all. But Roll For It is just such a simple game. It would be so... Like, I don't think you'd have enough there to fill up a whole episode. I haven't seen the episode specifically, but I know in the past when they've played smaller games, they usually play multiple small games in a session. Yeah. So and we can poke fun at them, but they have way more viewers than us, and... You I know. know, that's why we do poke fun at them. <laughs> We're exactly. jealous. Well, come on, guys, let us play with you. Yeah, please. No, I want to all... play with Wesley Crusher. <laughs> and Seven of Nine, you had her on too, and you could have invited me. And Felicia Day, and yeah, oh. people. Well, guys, if you let us on, we'll stop making fun of you. That, that's not really a guarantee, but you never know. <laughs> <laughs> and somewhere, a single tear rolls down Will Wheaton's cheek. <laughs> Tabletop is an outstanding series. We all have watched it and continue to do so, and we're happy to have them there because they really do promote the hobby so very well. And in the future, I'm sure we'll be on the show. I'm yes, sure it's going to happen. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. We'll be there. We look forward to meeting you, Will. Yes. <laughs> Finally, Munchkin Oz, available this month exclusively at Target stores. Okay. Now, I got to tell you, Steve Jackson Games blew it big time they really blew it when they failed to name this game munchkin munchkin (laughs) yes true he had one chance at that one chance and he threw it away (laughs) is that too meta munchkin 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 (laughs) it's just meta enough is it munchkin (laughs) squared (laughs) that's too meta that's too meta okay it's uh it's only in target not any of the other big box stores and of course uh, there is no Target in this small town in which I live. So, of course, that's karma right there. And, well, i got to add three final words. Smash up Munchkin. And those are the last three words I'm going to say about that franchise. This is getting ridiculous. Oh, uh, four more <laughs> words. And that's it. That's it. We've just hit the singularity with that one. It's just, 
the hobby that might actually be the point where the hobby begins to collapse in on itself <laughs> too much yeah. self-referential just silliness and eventually it all collapse <laughs> the black hole of gaming and that is shouted from the tabletop for this week and now our acquisition disorders Acquisition Disorders? That's crazy! Only needs the base game, nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game and the expansion and the promos and, of course, the... Alright, so now on to our Acquisition Disorders. Each and every week we take a look at what brand new games are hitting the market and what's really driving us intensely to pick up these games, add them to our collections, and make them hit the table and hit the table hard. All right, Anthony, why don't you start us off? What game are you really looking forward to? All right, so there's this game that I saw a few weeks ago that got announced by Ares Games, I believe, and it's called The Odyssey, Wrath of Poseidon. Bum, bum, bum. Yes, it has that bum, bum, bum in it automatically. It does. Um, It's got the word wrath. How can you not be excited about the word wrath? (laughs) It's no blood rage, but yeah, okay. No, yeah, it doesn't get the deep voice, but it gets the bum, bum, bum. It's true. Um... So this is a game. Bum, bum, bum. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a deduction game, a bit of an area movement game, and the the interesting thing about it, the thing I like, and it kind of reminds me a little of Battleship for some reason, is that you have one player playing Poseidon, and the rest of the people playing the navigators trying to get back to the island, uh, much like the Odyssey, where. Um, Odysseus angers the god and he spends the entire rest of his trip bumping along trying not to die while Poseidon tries to destroy him so that's what this game is all about the uh, navigators therefore they're trying to get through different storms and all these different um, obstacles that get thrown their way they also have to keep track of where their ships are in the board Um, but they're guessing a lot of the time because of how the board switches and changes and you can't always see what you're doing Poseidon's the only one who really knows where the ships are located because there's a separate copy of the game board which I thought that was a very interesting idea this could be extremely cool or very boring for people who don't like deduction games I'm not sure how it's going to work out but from what I've seen so far, what I've seen of the uh, the initial artwork on the cover, and the fact that Ares Games is doing it, so I'm sure you have a lot of great components in there. Combined with the fact that the designer on this has been around for a while, he's done a lot of really interesting games. It's Leo Colavini. He has a Carcassonne game under his belt, The Bridges of Shangri-La, Incognito. So he's done a lot of interesting things. I think this could work, and it sounds pretty cool to me. So I'm excited to see how it works out in the long term. Sounds cool. Okay. All right, Daniel, what about you? So for me, I am looking at picking up a role-playing game called Feng Shui 2. Now, I've actually got the first Feng Shui, which came out, I think, in the late 90s. Okay. Uh, and they have decided to launch a second version of it. Uh, Feng Shui is a role-playing game that's sort of a wuja-style, maybe not even wuja, like full-on Hong Kong action movie role-playing game, where every character is going to be a character from that sort of one of the archetypes from those sorts of movies. So you've got the everyday hero, right, just the guy off the street. You've got the loose cannon cop. You've got cyborgs from the future. You've got, you know, the ghost whispering sorcerer, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And I really liked the first system because it provided such an unusual take on both the way world events are orchestrated around these points of power, these sort of feng shui points in the world. Uh, and provided an interesting slant on the way role-playing games typically run, right? 
there seem to be a couple of genres that are very popular. You've got the high Western fantasy. You've got the uh, sort of gritty modern. And then you've got the sort of supernatural horror genres. And there's overlap between those. Uh, but the Wuja slash Hong Kong action movie area is one that really was underexplored both when Feng Shui, the original game, came out and still now as Feng Shui 2 is coming out. Uh, and the the author, the designer of this game, is one who's, uh, uh, his name is Robin D. Laws, and he's written both a couple of game books, so he's contributed to some of the D&D game books, etc. Uh, but he's also written books about gaming, and I actually have one of his, which is Hamlet's Hit Points, uh, and mm -hmm. it's about using general narrative structure to understand how to uh, develop a good and compelling game narrative and the other way around and it's really a very good book and a very good resource for any sort of role-playing oriented gamer uh, so i'm i look forward to picking up feng shui 2 and i may have had done this by the time you hear this because <laughs> it will be uh present at gen con so uh it, it should be pretty exciting to see how that goes maybe you should ask future drew if you actually were able to do so Future Drew, was I was I successful? Yes, yes, and and I learned at Gen Con that this game has nothing to do with interior design. Oh, yeah. Well, so. you know. You know. <laughs> oh man. And what do you have for us, Drew? Me. Yes. Well, Present Drew, not future Drew. Present. Labyrinth. Love that franchise of tile shifting games. Whether it's a square, circle, rectangle, no matter whether you're trying to pick up objects. Labyrinth is a great series of games, and uh, Labyrinth is coming to the game table in September. However, it's not that franchise that we've known. It's another pop culture icon. Remember that movie from the 1980s, Labyrinth, created by Jim Henson? Yes. And uh, George Lucas? Absolutely. Two big names from back then. They're making a board game out of that. Okay. That. Yeah. <laughs> As you know, I'm all about the IP, so... That's why I have to get this game. It is such a unique film touchstone of my youth, of a lot of people's youth, that just to own the game would be really cool. Plus, don't you really want to see what a miniature David Bowie looks like? you got <laughs> you got to get that game. It's going to look amazing. That's all I have to say about that. I can't wait that. to paint it. I want to paint that miniature. Especially if you have a miniature Jennifer Connelly. I think that would look great, too. So <laughs> it's, it's all the beautiful people and the beautiful Muppets all in one spot. So, yeah. Especially with the big 80s hair. Oh, man. <laughs> I hope it's miniatures. Uh, we'll see. How about you, Chris? So I am looking forward to picking up what I hope to be a high-quality, really solid Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game. Now, this is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shadows of the Past. Now, this IP has finally gotten out, and it seems like a number of different companies have picked this up. Now, the game I'm talking about is the IDW Games release, or the Pandasaurus game release. And this is by Kevin Wilson, the designer, and the artist is Kevin Eastman. So, yeah. obviously, you know who you're talking about here. Now, this is the original comic book version. I mean the original comic book version, not the current update ones. So, this is a scenario-driven campaign story that fe features all the main characters and the ultimate villain, Shredder. So, players battle their way through a series of, you know, about 60 to 90 minute missions in which they can develop their characters' abilities 
and you know fight a story arc. So you're going to have people like Casey Jones in the game and other different heroes and villains kind of helping out in battle. And this is something that I'm really looking forward to, and I'm hoping that this follows a mice and mystics type of you know feel. This is what it's, it, it it has that feel, and I'm hoping that this comes with some high quality miniatures because. I love me my miniatures, whether it's miniature gaming or miniatures in board gaming. And especially if Kevin Eastman is doing the artwork here, this could be an outstanding game. I know other publishers are doing stuff with this IP, especially WizKids, which kind of really bums me out. But this, you know, with the Kevin Eastman artwork, I'm really excited. Hmm. This looks awesome. Yeah. It's, it's not just that it's the original artwork, but they went and they got Kevin Wilson, who is one of the designers or the designer on Descent. Yes. And he worked on Sid Meier's Civilization, and he worked on the Game of Thrones. So he's done a lot of these big, epic, Americlash-type games, and he's done the miniatures, and I want miniature Ninja Turtles <laughs> to paint. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you have such a great pedigree here. And as Anthony, you were saying this, as far as the game, you really couldn't do much better. So this is what I'm uh, – it's on my radar. I'm looking out for it. I'm definitely going to get the play of this, if not going to pick this up right away. So that's our acquisition disorders. That's what's going to be hopefully hitting our table. And maybe future Drew can tell us whether or not we get these, but – Eventually, yes. Of All right. Eventually, yes. Nice going, future Drew. <laughs> <laughs> Present Drew never really has any of these good answers, so we're glad to have you here with us this week. <laughs> All right. So now that we're done with acquisition disorders, let's talk about what's hitting our table this week. And now at the table with BGA. All right, so for this week at BGA at the Table, we want to talk about what games have gotten to our table, whether they're card games, board games, miniatures, or RPGs. And in our rating scale, we want to give you an idea whether you should pick this game up and actually purchase it. And if we feel like the game is worth it, we'll tell you the game is worth the buy. Whether it's at full price or some sort of discount price, you should absolutely pick this game up now. If we feel like the game is definitely worth the time, we're going to let you know this game is a play, and you should join people at the table. Now, if the game is absolutely not worth the buy, not worth the play, eh, unless you're dragged to it, the game is a dodge. Usually better games being played around you. Try those games out. And finally, if we feel like a game is not helping the industry, really takes it down a notch, and hurts your game night, we're going to rate that game a burn. Just avoid that game at all costs. Now, with that said, let's see what everyone's getting to the table. Daniel, why don't you start us off? Alrighty. So this last week, I did a lot of role-playing because that's just about the only kind of gaming I can really do while I'm on the road as much as I have been this summer. Right? Okay. You don't really need to bring anything along beyond your computer or maybe a few books, depending on the system you're using. Uh, and I actually ended up playing in two very closely related systems. Uh, the first is I ran a game, started a campaign, actually, for Apocalypse World. And I've talked about Apocalypse World before. Uh, for those of you who don't know, it's a very narrative-driven, rules-light uh, role-playing game where the characters are very powerful people trying to make their way through an apocalypse, as the name would suggest. And as has pretty much always been the case with Apocalypse World, I had a really great time playing. 
Uh, this was special for me because it was my first time trying to run a campaign, and the first session can be tricky. But overall, things turned out pretty well, which is remarkable considering we had, I think, five players, ranging from someone who had provided feedback on the uh, Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition handbooks, uh, to somebody who has never, ever played a role-playing game before, and is, in fact, doesn't speak English as a first language. Uh, and we were still able to negotiate that. And actually, that ended up being kind of cool because that player chose to play a hard holder, which is a character who like runs a town, essentially. And she speaks Mandarin, Chinese, as her native language. And so she kept naming everyone in her hold, in her little town, her walled fortress in Mandarin, because it was the one way she could have names that she could remember. Uh, and what ended up giving is this really cool culture, right? It had this its, its own language, its own way of interacting. It was structured very differently from the rest of the world, so it really felt different. Um, and it's rare that you can have a role-playing game that can negotiate those boundaries so well. Uh, and it is one of those games that you really, you just set up the beginning of the game as the dungeon master and then things happen, right? Somebody misses a roll and then they're, you know, on fire in the middle of the woods and someone has to go save them. Uh, it really was a great time. Um. The other game I played is one called Legend of the Elements. And Legend of the Elements is actually a hack of Apocalypse World. It's based off of Apocalypse World very early on. And it, it incorporates elements from uh, Avatar The Last Airbender. Uh, so like Feng Shui, it's got this sort of wuja feel to it. Uh, but you throw in some sort of elemental magics and that sort of thing. And you've got a pretty good feel for how Avatar World works. Avatar World works, or sorry, that's its earlier name. I think they changed it for legal reasons. Uh, Legend of the Elements works because uh, by um, right, you, you all join together, you make your characters, you wander through. Uh, it's a little different than Apocalypse World because you're a little more cooperative. Uh, and the presence of an established Avatar mythology does give you something to lean back on that you don't really have in Apocalypse World uh, as easily available. Uh, but you don't have to. And in fact, we've changed a lot of details about it. The uh, for us, for instance, uh, the Avatar is a bad guy. Uh, in fact, we're trying to stop somebody from becoming the sort of dark Avatar. If you ever watched Legend of Korra, I think that was like the plot of season two, right? Uh, something to that effect. Uh, it was. It's another really great game. Uh, definitely worth the, the time to play it. And that one I played rather than ran, but it's not disappointed once yet. Uh, so for both of these games, I would give them definite plays if you're at all interested in role-playing game. And these are especially kind for new players because they're rules light. Though you do need to be willing to roll with the punches, especially in Apocalypse World, because the game is most interesting when bad things are happening. That's why it's called Apocalypse World. <laughs> Indeed. Exactly. Uh, failures tend to be more interesting than successes, and you yeah. have to be willing to accept that your characters' loved ones are going to be taken from them. Their precious items will be shattered and broken or stolen, right? And their uh, seats of power will be taken from beneath them. Uh, but if you're into that, it's a great system. Does George R.R. R. Martin know about this game? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, he might. He might. It would actually make a really good base system for a uh, Game of Thrones-style game. Uh, it would be a, a very good fit for that sort of environment because individual characters are all very powerful against a world that is itself chaotic and is really the threat. Uh, so you get to have these sort of points of focus the same way that 
kind of how that book was written, right? Uh, and they all get to be sort of heroic, but they still have to worry about the threats from outside. And if they don't cooperate or have the right sort of friends, then bad things happen to them. Uh, but both of these definite plays, I would say buy if you have played them and liked them, definitely buy them. I know there are some PDFs floating around out there. but uh, And Legend of the Elements actually hasn't been available for purchase recently, but it will be in August. So that's cool. So, you know, support our independent game designers by a Legend of the Elements when it comes out. Yeah. All right. Very cool. What do you have for us, Drew? For me, my, the most recent game I brought to the table was Shadows Over Camelot, a game which is observing its 10th anniversary this year. Okay. It's been around one of the first games to uh, p- popularize the trader mechanic um, and probably does it better than any game because you never really know if there's a trader in the game. You don't know. You can't assume there is. Um, there's always the possibility. That's always a lot of fun. But what made this game special is that we were teaching it to an 11-year-old. He's someone who's, who's played cooperative games before, along with his 9-year-old brother. 9-year-olds seem to prefer cooperative games. They feel safer. But, but this kid, he was ready for more of a challenge. You know how pre-adolescents are. They're, they're devious and sneaky, and they want to uh, throw a monkey wrench into things. So having that possibility and bluffing and faking and hiding who you, what your real motives are it is exciting for an 11-year-old. Um, the, the box says 10 and up, which I think is perfect, perfect age to, to teach the game. The, the best thing about a game like that is you do yourself in. Every time you do something good, you have to do something bad to make, to make it more difficult. It's, in many ways, this is a grandfather to Dead of Winter. Um, some of the best parts of Shadows shows up in Dead of Winter. And um, he has definitely seen Dead of Winter at the local game store. He's itching to try it out, and I think I'm going to introduce him next to that game. Shadows of a Camelot definitely is a buy. Uh, it should be in every person's library because it is, like I said, one of the best of its kind. It floats around in the 40 to $50 range, so it's easily affordable. Go out and get a copy. Yeah, I had a chance to play this and its expansion and it really is a nice entry-level game, as you said, Drew, for that trader mechanic and also that co-op mechanic because everything's in front of you. The board and all the different little mini-games that you get to play with the cards and different tokens. So if you love Arthurian Legend or looking for a good co-op, this is a great place to start. Days of Wonder, man. Nice job. All right, Anthony, what do you get to the table this week? Cool. So um game I wanted to talk about is one that I think you mentioned a few weeks ago, but uh, I got a chance to play it for the first time at uh, Dexcon just uh, two, three weeks ago ourselves, and that's Glenmore. Dave brought this out, and we played it. We actually played it outside of the hotel, which was awesome because it was very nice outside, and we had some dinner, and the sun was going down, and it was just a very pleasant experience, especially after spending all day trying to find a place to, to play any games in that hotel, which was packed. Sure. Um, so that was fun. But the game itself, also fun, which probably made the experience that much better. Um, it's a tableau builder, and the, when you first break it out, there's not, there are plenty of uh, components, but they're, you know, they're smaller, and it's a smaller box. But it's definitely a lot more to it than it initially looks. Um, it reminded me of Spirium in terms of the weight of the game. 
the the small board and you're going to have meeples that kind of go around the board um, with the option to pick up tiles along the way. But it's much like Takedo, the, the person at the end of that line of meeples is the one who goes first. So if you jump way out in front, you're going to wait while other people grab a bunch of tiles behind you. But of course, if you end the game with more tiles than anybody else, you get a penalty. So you kind of have to balance the two out a little bit. Uh, as you build out your tableau, you're going to get a number of different things it'll do. You're going to have different people on the tableau who let you build new stuff um, if they're adjacent to it. Or you can pull those meeples off the board, and I think those are chieftains that get you points um, as part of the scoring. There's also uh, barrels that you can get points from if you produce those as part of your tableau. Um, there are cards you can buy um, as part of the different tiles that you pick up. You'll get a card, and it has a bonus or an in-game scoring. Those are also worth points if you have some at the end of the game. The scoring on the game wasn't super high, but it's definitely dependent on those sets that you collect and those cards. If you don't have a clean strategy early and start building towards it, uh, you're not going to do very well. I did not do very well, uh, but it was the first time playing, so it's, that's what happens. Did it have the feel of Alhambra? I mean, first time I saw it, I thought the whole tile-eating thing was, was like the next step beyond Alhambra, a little more complicated, complex yeah, yeah, maybe a little bit. The The thing about Alhambra is that once you place the tile, it doesn't do anything. Um, you're, Alhambra is straight set collection because you're just trying to get the most of any single color and make sure that your tableau continues to grow and you get that border. Um, super simple and easy to teach. Glenmore has a lot more going on because you can kind of build out a little bit of an engine. The placement of your meeples on that tableau will determine where you can build. The directions that you're allowed to build are indicated on each tile. So they have to be either vertically adjacent to the uh, river or horizontally adjacent to the road if it has those icons on it. And not every tile has those. Some of them are free roamers, but not all of them. And then there's resources, too, that you can gain from some of those tiles so they have different colored cubes that might appear on the tiles once they activate and you need those to purchase various things or pick up different tiles off the board that are higher level or just some of them are just for scoring so there's a lot more going on than a game like Alhambra but I like that it kind of upgrades you know you're building out that kind of cool tableau but there's also this all these other elements of it I had a lot of fun with it it did not take super long which was nice and it really kind of scratched that same itch of Spirium, like I said, where it's that medium weight where you get to think a little bit and everybody's kind of on the, on the, on the same page with everything, but it doesn't take three hours like a lot of Euros. So I had a lot of fun with it. It's definitely a play. I would consider possibly a buy on this one. I definitely want to play again and get a better feel for it. Um, like I said, that first play, I had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> um, but I had a lot of fun. Yeah, this was a buy for me. I really enjoyed playing this game. A really interesting mechanic where you're a meeple chasing each other around a board and picking up those different tiles to build the tableau. And then that it automatically jumps into a worker placement game where depending on where you place a tile and where you place your chieftains, that makes a difference. And as you said, a number of different paths to victory as far as the collections are going. And yet, it's a short, quick game, and the production quality is pretty good for it. So, if you can find it, that's the real big problem, check it out. Now, speaking about hard-to-find games, I finally got my game of Viceroy from Kickstarter. Now, this game was kind of held up in the ports and held up in Russia, and everything that's been going on in the world has really held this game from getting back to its backers. Finally, it got out. And if you're not familiar with Viceroy, it's based upon the fantasy universe 
of a Russian CCG called Berserk. Now, personally, I don't know too much about that game, but what I do know about Viceroy, it's a quite interesting game. I got an opportunity to put it down at the table, and basically what you're doing is you're playing these different character cards in a pyramid-shaped tableau. Now, each of these cards have some sort of special ability, and just like Glenmore, you're trying to collect sets of things. It has a little bit of a Seven Wonders where there's different science tokens and different things such as that nature. It also has certain elements of Imperial Settlers where there are swords. It will cause other players to lose points in the game unless they have shields. Kind of like, you know, Imperial Settlers a little bit. Now, as far as purchasing the cards, there's a marketplace, and you'll place the cards above and beyond the certain colored gem. And you'll have to bid a gem in order to win that card. But other players, since this is a blind bidding game, can also wager that same gem. If you kind of bump heads, no one gets it, and then you have to have another chance to go around again. Eventually, the cards form a secondary market and more cards come out and if you do win that gem that has two cards you get to choose which card you place in your tableau the artwork for this game is outstanding i was also able to pick up the player mat that's really a nice little pickup and it's very thematic for the game i also picked up the little plastic gems which honestly I don't think are necessary for the game. The components here are really nice. The little gem cardboard chips really do the job really well. And when you place the cards, not only are you getting a special ability, but on the edges of the cards, they have a part of a gem. Now, if you're able to place cards above and below that make a full gem, you'll be able to score extra points in this game. And at the end of the game, any gems that you had as far as bidding were concerned, you'll be able to paint over some of those other colors that weren't initially matching but now they do match and you'll score those additional points the game is light the game is fun i think this game will eventually take i would say a high level high exposure as far as a gateway game as far as a euro game is concerned the theme is kind of thin it's more of a mechanical abstract game but it's a fun game it has that suburbia type of feel to it where placing things in a certain spot does make a big difference but you know if that's not for you it's going to be a little bit of a challenge i recommend this game as a buy because i think this is going to get a lot of play at the table with a lot of different people it's not very challenging but it's very interesting i'm going to recommend this game for a buy all right so that's everything for our at the table this week And now, BGA's feature review. Our feature review this week is, if you like Seven Wonders, try dot 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 these games. In this feature, we're going to take a look at Seven Wonders in an overview, but in depth, we're going to take a look at the mechanics and the elements that make Seven Wonders so great that you may want to take those elements, those mechanics, and look at other games that also do those things really well. So to kind of expand and explore your Seven Wonders universe into a number of other games. Now, Seven Wonders, as you hopefully know, is a card drafting game, tableau building, civilization game. 
in which you're going to be able to use variable player boards that start your civilization off in order to create this rich tapestry of different sciences, technologies, military, culture, wonder. So we wanted to talk about four different elements that really make Seven Wonders outstanding and what games kind of play off those elements. So to start off with, Drew, why don't you take our first step since we talked about those variable player powers, what do you recommend from there? Ah, uh, yes, my very favorite all-time mechanic, the rondelle. No, uh, well, this is, <laughs> this is my second favorite. Okay. Variable player powers. Seven Wonders is an awesome game for introducing people to variable player powers because it's, it's very subtle. Yes, everyone has a different game board, which basically is just giving you variable goals for the game. It also gives you a couple of resources that other players don't have. Um, and you can also buy the resources on the boards next to you, to your right or left. Very subtle ways of introducing variations. So if you really like that, the fact that everybody starts from a different place and is headed toward a different goal, um, there are a couple of games you're going to like. Variable player powers really can spruce up any game, make it different every time out. That's why I think it's a great mechanic to use for classic games like Parcheesi or Monopoly, even, to make them interesting. Co-op games always use variable player powers, it seems. The best ones do. So if you really love variable player powers, I think the no-brainer of all games that you want to go to next after Seven Wonders is Small World because there are two different variables in every game of Small World. The race that you are going to be playing and the specific characteristic aligned with that race. So you're getting two different variations combined in totally unique ways. There's just hundreds of different ways that these two things can be combined. And that's what makes this game uh, so fascinating because you're going to choose your combination with a specific strategy in mind. But the best part about Small World is the fact that you almost have to change. So think of it as a variable, variable player power game. You can't just sit tight with the race and the, and the characteristic you've chosen. At some point during the game, and the timing has to be right, you're going to jump to a different race and a different characteristic. And two, you're going to have to choose, do you go with, the neglected combination because every time somebody passes over a particular combination of race and power, a coin gets put there. So neglected combinations come with a lot of money. Do you choose the poor combination or are you willing to sacrifice in order to have a really good combination of race and characteristic? So it, it really ups the ante on the variable player power mechanic. I love small world. And if you want to go beyond that, I think the next game to try out is Citadels. In, in some ways, it's seen as a, a gateway game, but Citadels changes your particular role, your particular player powers every single round. So it keeps you hopping. There are eight different characters, sometimes nine, I think, depending on how many are in the game. Everyone has a different power, and the cards are passed around the players at the table choose which character, which power they want to have that particular round. It changes from time to time. And it adds a, a very nice take that uh, 
twist to games too, because some of the characters, some of the powers you adopt, you can dis, you can inconvenience some of the other players. But of course, if you become too obvious in the characters and powers you choose, you could be the one who gets taken. Um, so there's a lot of craftiness there. It, it changes up the, the the player powers every round. Small World, Citadels, both games that are great for exploring the, the mechanic of variable player powers. And once you've had enough experience at that, you're ready for the ultimate cosmic encounters. We're not going to talk about it. <laughs> really complex. All right. Thanks, Drew. What about you, Daniel? What do you have for us? Uh, so for me, I was going to focus on what is one of my favorite mechanics in all of board gaming, which is tableau building. Uh, and there's really two standout games here for me. Uh, the first is Roll for the Galaxy. I would have gone with Race, but honestly, I like Roll better, both from the kinematic, uh, haptic, sensory uh, reinforcement of rolling the dice to just the way the game plays out. Uh, and it's just, you know, a good time for everybody. Uh, Roll for the Galaxy has been a pretty popular game recently, so I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with it. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's a tableau-building, dice-rolling uh, I guess dice building game too, right? Where you collect more and more dice as the game goes on, uh, where you try to build a tableau that allows you to accrue as many points as possible. And the tableau can also give you other ways to get points, special powers, etc. cetera. Uh, Roll for the Galaxy is just a fantastically fun time. It is easy to learn, easy to play. And honestly, in my opinion, one of the best games out there right now, certainly one of the best new games out there right now. Um, I remember we've we've all played this together. At, uh, we played it together at DexCon, right? And that was really a fantastic time. Uh, and it was, you know, we had just been introduced to the game. I hadn't even played Race for the Galaxy yet and picked it up almost immediately. Right, guys? Did you guys feel like there was much of a lag Yes, there? low barrier to entry. I think the tableau element is really expanded upon with Roll. Those really nice, hard chips and just being able to build your galaxy really does feel a lot more thematic in roll then it doesn't race so much you're expecting me to agree to that (laughs) rather than complicate this discussion i'm just going to remain silent look drew if you talk to future drew future drew will tell you that he likes roll for the galaxy so much better than present drew likes race for the galaxy let's just uh let's let's table that one because that is a uh a passionate issue (laughs) but roll for the galaxy is an excellent tableau building game and it's one that i think you should give a shot all right Uh, The other one that I'm going to recommend is one that's a little bit more militant. In fact, it's entirely militant. Uh, And this is Kemet. Uh, And Kemet is an ancient Egyptian-themed tableau-building army management game. So there's some touches that almost resemble Risk, but with uh, not to step on uh, Drew's Risk-loving toes, uh, but... (laughs) It's actually fun. No, uh, it, uh, no actually, the, the big difference there is that you can buy new powers uh, and incorporate them into your tableau, and it will permanently change what you're capable of. The result is a very dynamic gameplay. Now, a lot of people don't really like the art on the board that much, and it is pretty bland. It did not bother me, but I think I might be the only one who wasn't bothered at all by it. Put aside the lackluster art there, uh, Kimet is probably one of the most... Uh, energetic and entertaining tableau builders 
uh, particularly because it has such a heavy focus on sort of military act. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think there has not been a game that does this so well and really does make you feel like you're building your army in such a unique tableau way. I mean, there are, there are games like Rune Wars, there are games like Battle Lore, but being able to pick these different tiles up, you really do have a unique army that changes from game to game. Definitely a good choice. So, Anthony, what mechanic do you have for us this week? All right, so I'm going to talk about set collection, which I realize I already talked about for Pandemic several weeks ago, but I'm going to pick different games, so we're okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of them is Pandemic, just kidding. One of them is a game we just talked about a few weeks ago that I uh, actually greatly enjoyed, and it's still on the mind, and I, I want to get to the table again, especially in the newer version, and that's St. Petersburg. Everything about this game was just not 100% unique. There's nothing here that you haven't seen in similar situations elsewhere, but just the way it flows and the way it kind of uh, grows organically as you play through the different rounds was very interesting to me. And the set collection aspect of it is very important. Really how the set collection comes in here is in one of two ways. So there are the nobles, which the more of them you have, the more points you get. So you need, you're basically collecting a set of diverse nobles over the course of the game um, through either recruiting them or upgrading current ones. And then the other form of set collection is you can basically get cheaper workers or cheaper buildings by purchasing that same one over and over again um, but there are of course limited numbers of each of those in the deck so you can't necessarily have six different kinds of workers and build out successive uh, sets you need to kind of choose carefully based on what's available and at the same time try not to get yourself so locked into a corner that you don't have the resources you need when you go to upgrade them i found it very interesting i over diversified my workers but on the buildings i didn't um, i was much better on that side and had a couple buildings that i'd been able to upgrade multiple times with a, with a nice set of three or four cards and I really like that idea. I like that you can even kind of mess with that idea a little by upgrading various sets or moving a set over and up upgrading a card with those particular options. Everything here is about timing and making sure that you take the right action at the right time. And because the person who goes first for each of the different decks on the board changes over time, there's a lot of different options there. All right, so the other game I wanted to talk about, and this one I like a lot just in terms of both the set collection aspect and the fact that the weight is kind of similar to Seven Wonders, and so is the theme, so double bonus. This one is Augustus, also known as Rise of Augustus, so you've probably heard us say it both ways. And it's a game that came out a couple years ago, and it's very similar. You'll think bingo. You play the game and you think bingo, but don't think bingo because it's much more than just bingo. Um, the We had a lot of fun with this. We played it several times when we, we brought it to the table for review last year. And while the core mechanic of the game is drawing those tokens out of the bag and matching it to the cards you have in front of you, a la bingo, the way you're going to score points is by building sets out of different colored country pieces and then having different sets or different available options for the uh, the resources that are on the cards. You're also going to be able to get bonuses with uh, the different senators and the sets you can get on that side. So there's all these different things you can get based on how many cards you have. You can get bonus points if you're the first person to get, you know, let's say, three or four or five of the senators, or if you get three the the green country pieces or three of the purple ones, it kind of helps guide what your strategy is based on what your starting cards are and what you end up pulling, and you can kind of mitigate depending on what's coming out of that bag. So it's a lot of fun because you are, uh, to some degree 
deciding how you're going to build your sets, but at the same time, there's enough luck involved that you will need to change your direction every now and then, which keeps the game interesting without it being just straight bingo. All right, very cool. So the mechanic that I really find great about Seven Wonders, and I would highly recommend, is the card drafting mechanic. Now, there have been other games that have card drafted before, but Seven Wonders is really the game that made it very, very popular. Now, there are a number of different card drafting games, but I think these two games have card drafting at the heart in a really strong and particular way. Now, one of these games we talked about very recently is Notre Dame. Now, what's interesting about this card drafting mechanic is that everyone starts with the same cards. And then when you're able to draft, you're going to be picking three cards out of this small pile, drafting one of those cards, and then passing those cards around to be drafted from so that they can play those cards. So there is a good opportunity that you might get a hand of cards passed back to you that might be identical or very similar to the cards that you initially picked up. So you can play multiple actions or actions that you didn't have a chance to pick up yet. So this game is all about card drafting because it drives what moves you'll be able to make in the game. And it really does have so much, literally so much importance in this game protecting you from the rats, scoring you points. It's really an outstanding card drafting game. Now, the second game isn't often thought of as a card drafting game. And honestly, most people probably don't even play the card drafting mechanic in this game. And that's Agricola. Now, a number of people either love the game or a number of people hate the game. Now, I feel like the stark feelings about this game come from the fact that people don't often draft the cards in Agricola. Now, Agricola is this classic Uwe Rosenberg game where you're building up a farm, trying to feed your family, trying to score points. And at the start of the game, typically, unless you're playing the family version, you are going to get a hand of cards that are based upon whatever deck the owner of the game decides they want to kind of put together. Now, there are a number of decks, and the decks do different things. Now, usually you're handed a deck, a handful of cards, and that handful of cards is going to determine your game and whether you're going to have a good game or a bad game. And honestly, if you're handed a a handful of cards and those things don't kind of work together, you're going to have a bad game, man. I'm sorry. Like, I love to work off what I have in a hand, but you're not going to win that game if things just don't work out. Now, card drafting in a curriculum is really where it's at. Now, I have a disclaimer here that if you don't know the decks, card drafting in a curricula is a slightly painful experience because you're not sure what works together and what's coming around. But if you do have at least a general feel for the deck, you'll be able to put things together. So like, let's say, for example, the first hand of cards you get is all about producing grain. So you pick a card that allows you to harvest more grain. And then it comes around again, and there's the you know, the corn shovel. Oh, I want to pick that up because that'll actually help me you know, with the other grain cards. So as the hands of cards go around and you're drafting cards that you will eventually play, 
you'll be able to build a strategy just like Seven Wonders does with the leaders. The leaders are an expansion to the Seven Wonders game that give you an initial drafting round. So Agricola absolutely positively benefits greatly from the card drafting mechanic just like Seven Wonders does in total but also especially from its leaders mechanic. So those are four different mechanics that you can check out in other games that make Seven Wonders so wonderful. The tableau building, the set collection, the card drafting, and the variable player powers. So that's everything for our feature review. And now, our final round. Well, for our final round, you know, this week, yet another big Hollywood blockbuster film was released on Friday. And that film is called Mission Impossible something, something, something. Four well, or five or ten or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you love the franchise, then you've already seen the movie, no matter what the title is. So I thought a good subject for Final Round is, what is the game franchise that you'll always come back to, no matter what the sequel or the expansion is, what is it you're always going to check out? For me, it's Risk, Daniel. It's always <laughs> going to be Risk. Whether it's, uh, I've got two copies of the original edition, uh, all the way up to Risk Legacy. It's, it's something I'm always interested in. Love the, the gameplay from my youth. And the different variations, whether it's playing Risk on the Moon or Castle Risk or, or what have you. You know, there's one version I hate, I absolutely despise. It's the one that has the little pieces instead of the wooden cubes. They were little plastic Roman numerals, like one and three and five. I hate that game. And yet, a couple months ago, I bought it at a thrift shop. That's how much <laughs> I love the franchise. That's my go-to franchise. How about you guys? Would it be cheating for me to say Dungeons & Dragons? No, no, no. Okay, Dungeons & Dragons. All, all five editions? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's D&D, &D, and then there's AD&D &D in 2nd Edition, 3rd Edition, 3.5. Yeah. So there's there's more than five, right? But yeah, all of them. I have, I think, four different editions, rule books, which is not as many as a lot of other people have. I mean, D&D &D is just a mainstay in my favorite area of gaming, which is role-playing games, right? Which, you know, surprise, I'm sure you guys didn't pick up on that yet. <laughs> I've been so subtle about it today. Uh, but it is, uh, I've really never had an, a, a, an edition of D&D that I couldn't find a place for, with the possible exception of 4th edition. Um, that was, uh, it was all right. It wasn't as good as the rest of them. But I will always crack open a new D&D &D book as soon as it's out. They do make good reading. <laughs> They do. Anthony? The one game that I keep pulling new stuff for that I could keep playing over and over again, and Drew, you'll hate this, but the Lord of the Rings card game. <laughs> um, and it's a little cheating, I guess, to pick an LCG, but this one in particular is great for me just because it's always bringing in new challenges and new stuff to build decks with, and it's a solo game. So it, uh, it kind of gives me new options to build out on a game that I already really, really like. Chris? So for me, I'm thinking about miniatures, especially high-quality miniatures. Now, the most reliable franchise has to be Star Wars X-Wing miniatures. The quality that Fantasy Flight brings to these miniatures are outstanding. They're very thematic. And each and every wave really does a great job. So if there's a new ship coming out, I'm picking that up. 
On a lesser point, the Star Trek Attack Wing, which I'm a big fan of, WizKids doesn't do a great job with their paintwork, but it's also very thematic. And recently, the D&D Attack Wing is outstanding. So those miniature sets are always an instant buy for me, and I'm always looking forward to the next wave. Pretty cool. Well, very good. Thanks, guys. That is our final round. So that's everything for this week. Please keep in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on BoardGameGeek, especially our Patreon account. We really would appreciate your support. Rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. The more reviews we get, the more we'll be able to get out our hobby to all the new gamers out there. Until next time, this is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. And future Drew will tell us if we need to save you a seat at the table. What is this future Drew? You brought it in. I brought it in. (laughs) There's gotta be something.